So have you ever just not wanted to make dinner? You know, I mean, either, either you're a terrible cook and the microwave is broken, which, you know, that happens sometimes, or maybe you're a terrific cook, but your energy level is broken. You just, you ain't got nothing there. I was reading this week about Lauren. Lauren's a food director for an online magazine. She said that two years ago, when, since her first child was born, cooking now has become a misery instead of a joy. It used to be a joy. You know, that's what she does. She's a, a food director for a magazine, so she loves food, loves cooking, but since her child was born, not so much anymore. And at first, she said she put all of this self-inflicted pressure on herself. She's like, we're not buying store-brand baby food, right? Well, I'm, I'm going to make it all myself. You know, everything's going to be fresh. I'm going to do it all myself, you know. So she had all this pressure that she put on herself about making sure that, that she had to do all of these things just right with the food. You ever put that kind of pressure on yourself? Ever, ever self-inflicted yourself with some pressure? Maybe uh, overthought a situation? Overanalyzed a situation? Overstressed out about a situation? None of us do that, right? None of us. We never, never over anything, right? I think all of us have been there. So how are things working out for Lauren? See if you hear yourself in her response, regardless of whether you're a mom. Hear if, see if you hear yourself in here. I never thought I'd be the type of person buying fish sticks, but now seeing a box of them in the freezer brings me a great sense of relief, right? Yeah, just an excitement that there's fish sticks. She goes on, the reality is now that I have a child, I dislike cooking on most days. And admitting that to myself and saying it out loud when I've not heard anyone else say the same has truly been cathartic. And then she said this, and it'll make tomorrow night's pizza delivery all the more glorious, right? We've all been there, right? Sometimes it's just nice to get the pizza. But wouldn't it be nice if pizza solved everything, right? Wouldn't it be nice if, if pizza solved all of the self-inflicting pressures of life? But it doesn't, does it? So, is there something that can help? Is there something that can help those moments of overthinking, of, of overanalyzing, of overstress? Something that helps the self-inflicted pressure. And we would even say the self-inflicted sin that we have in our life. Is there something to help? Well, there is. Let's see if we can find out. Lamentations chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. Is it nothing to all you who pass this way? Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me. Now, my guess is we've all been there, right? We're in that moment where we think that no one else has it worse than us, right? That no one else has experienced the kind of pain or stress or, or sickness or whatever it may be that we're experiencing. It's like, has anybody ever seen anything like this? That's what they're doing. This is a poem written as a reflection from an entire city, really almost an entire nation. And it's a poem of lament. They're, they're lamenting the events of what happened in 586 B.C. They're, they're lamenting what happened to their city. And this lament is kind of a both and. 
So they are lamenting. They are saying, look at how terrible things are in our life. Look at this awful stuff that is happening. Look at what I'm suffering. Look at my stress. Look at my anxiety. Look at my fear. Look at my anger. Look at my worry. Look at all of this stuff happening in my life. But the both and is they also realize, but you know what? It's, it was our doing. Now, now most of us, in fact, I would dare say all of us, unless we grew up in a war-torn country, don't understand the concept of an army coming in and invading and taking over our hometown. But we do know how to sit at Thanksgiving dinner, eat way too much food, and a few hours later be miserable about it, right? We, we know that kind of misery. Some of us have experienced what it means to disobey or dishonor our parents and then have them have to come rescue us from the consequences. Some of us understand what it means to, to ignore medical advice and then end up in the ER with someone trying to help us through the consequences. We know what it means to ignore sermons or ignore Bible studies or ignore advice from Christian friends and to ignore these things and then the, the consequences come along and we have to go back for more advice from ignoring the first advice. In other words, all of us understand the concept of, of dealing with something that's not fun, something that's miserable, and even in the misery, we know that we can stop and say, well, there's some self-inflicted pain here. There's a self-inflicted sin. There's some self-inflicted pressure. We understand what it means to sit in the consequences of our sin, whether that sin's anger or fear or worry or arrogance or pride or, or just apathy. We all understand what it means to be in consequences. The people here, they're lamenting the consequences of their sin. They're not confused about it. For 40 years, God's people ignored God. For 40 years. Now, they went to church. They, they were very religious. They were involved. But they were unwilling to humble themselves before God. They were unwilling to acknowledge that they were living in the, in the power of their pride instead of the power of grace and mercy and love. I think today marks 34 days until the start of college football season. That's, that's a big deal for a lot of us, right? I was reading something this week about all the many benefits that come from cheering for your team or, or even playing for your team or investing in your team. All the benefits that come from sports. And, and it also talked about all the highs and lows that come with sports, right? This is one of the things it said in the article. We soar with eagles one moment and we wallow in the pit the next. Most of us have experienced that with our favorite team at least once, right? We, we know what it means to soar, and we know what it means to wallow. But then the article took a, a twist, a turn, a challenge for those of us who are believers. P.J. Tibion said this, When was the last time we celebrated with a fist pump the evidence of God's grace breaking through a sin pattern in a fellow church member's life? Or giving others a moment of victory in the midst of a streak of defeats. When was the last time we got excited about sin being defeated? When was the last time that we pumped our fists in excitement of someone coming to faith in Christ or someone overcoming some great difficulty in their life? He goes on, why is our passion so low for the things that matter infinitely more, eternal rings, eternal trophies, than for a fleeting championship in sports. 
But then he says this, the bottom line is that sports are a good gift for the way it teaches us to treasure God, win or lose. See, that's the beauty, win or lose, part of what it means to be in Christ is that we can treasure God if we win and if we lose. See, the problem with God's people, the problem with the church, the problem with the folks in Jerusalem was that they were cheering on the wrong trophies. They had put together a passion for the wrong trophies. They were not treasuring God first and most. And now they were wallowing in the pit. They knew what it meant to soar, but now they're wallowing in the pit of defeat. And finally, after all of the defeat, after they lost everything, finally, like the prodigal son, they, they seemed to come to their senses and they said, oh gosh, we, we need to turn to the Lord. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. They were miserable, and then they realized their misery was their own fault. It was self-inflicted pressure. It was self-inflicted consequences. They refused to treasure God first and most. And how do we know that? How do we know that they're not just whining, you know? How do we know that, that they're not just complaining about their circumstances? Well, because of the very nature of what this is, it is a poem of lament. The very nature of what they're doing is after four decades, they are turning to God. They're complaining to God. They're asking God. They're trusting God. Things have changed. And how do we know that they're doing all that? Look at verse 12 which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. In other words, we know that they've actually humbled themselves because there's no confusion about why these things have happened. They're clearly understanding that this is discipline from the Lord. Now, at this point, some people say, well, I'm not going to believe in a God that is mean and angry and, and punishes people. My guess is all of us have had a moment where we ask those questions, right? Questions like, well, is God punishing me for, for what's happening here? Is God punishing those people for what's happening? Is, is God punishing the country for, for sin and immorality? We, we've all been in that moment. Well, this is just one sermon, and so we can't answer those questions with every single detail in one sermon. And if we had a million sermons, we wouldn't be able to answer those questions with every single detail. But at the very least, let's help move our hearts and our minds in a, a hopeful, eternal, practical direction. And I'm asking C.S. Lewis to, to help us a little bit. Several of these quotes I'm about to share gleaned from some radio programs that C.S. Lewis did between 1941 and 1944. In other words, he was doing some teaching in a time when the entire world understood the concepts of sin and evil and pain and suffering and difficulty. The whole world was engaged in the early 1940s in war, and they understood suffering and difficulty. They understood injustice. It was constantly in the news. There's nothing new under the sun. Lewis said this, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. And they do not, in fact, behave in that way. In other words, whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God, there's a way that you believe you're supposed to be living. 
An atheist believes they're supposed to be living in a certain way. A Christian believes they're supposed to be living in a certain way. And and anything and everything else that anyone believes, everybody believes they're supposed to live in a certain way based on something. But everyone would also agree they don't live in that way. Not not perfectly, not all of the time. They, They fail. So regardless of what you believe or who you believe, everybody believes they're supposed to live in some certain way and that way they don't live up to. Now, C.S. Lewis was, was an atheist, and he began to pursue and, and try to study and, and seek out the things about God. And part of the reason he was an atheist, he said, was because he saw so much injustice in the world. And this is how he responded. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So where's the straight line come from? Where's the whole notion of just and unjust come from? It's got to come from somewhere. can't just be pulled out of the air. My definition and the definition of an elitist politician or an elitist, you know, liberal uh, actor or actress, all of those things have to come from somewhere. Lewis goes on. The moment you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are, in fact, measuring them both by a standard. I was listening to an interview a few weeks ago, and and one of the people in the interview said, "I I don't like how Christians think that their standard is the only standard that everything has to be compared to to their standard. And I remember immediately in my mind thinking, if I was with that person, I would ask, well, what's your standard? What are you comparing things to? If it's not Christianity, what's your standard? Where, Where is it coming from? And the moment that you say that your morals are more important than someone else's morals, that means you're comparing it to something. There's there's a standard out there. Lewis goes on. You are, in fact, measuring them both by standard, comparing them both with some real morality, admitting that there is such a thing as a real right, independent of what people think, and that some people's ideas get nearer to that real right than others. So regardless of what side of the fence you fall on, whether it's politics or social injustice or, or sports or Coke and Pepsi, I mean, whatever it is, whatever, side of the, whatever it is that you're saying you're choosing one thing over the other, all of it is dependent on the fact that you are using some straight line. You are using some standard. You are using something to do your measuring. What C.S. Lewis discovered in, in, as an atheist searching for God, what the people of Jerusalem were discovering in, in 586, maybe early 585 B.C., was they were rediscovering, actually, that there is some truth to that real right, that real morality, that real straight line. What they discovered was that God was the line, that, that God was the sense of justice, that God was the one who was the real morality and the real right. They looked everywhere. God's people had been looking in alliances with other countries. They'd been looking in politics. They'd been looking in government. They'd been looking in finances and economy. They'd been looking in sports and entertainment and leisure. They were looking everywhere for some better standards. But ultimately, they kept bumping up against the line because there's only one straight line. So since God is the ultimate line, the ultimate standard of of justice, 
then it is not strange or inappropriate for God to be the one inflicting the standards of justice. So what we have here, if we pull all of that back, all those big theological and and philosophical thoughts out there, all those brain teasers simply to say this, when God's people lost their city and lost their nation, they didn't look out and go, why'd this happen? They weren't shocked. They understood the line. They understood the real right and the real morality. So so they weren't shocked. They, They understood what was going on. They weren't quick to say, God, you are so mean for letting all this happen. God, you're such an angry God to let all this, none of that is happening. No, they're realizing it's self-inflicted. They're realizing these are the, the consequences of their sin. They weren't quick to blame God. They weren't quick to be mad at God. They were late, but eventually they were quick to humble themselves before God. They learned what it meant to get to that point of saying, God, you're the line. God, you're the real right. God, you're the morality. And and we've stepped off to the side. They got there. And so now they're describing in their lament what they're experiencing. We've all been there, right? Even even if we get it mentally and, and emotionally and spiritually right, okay, this happened, yeah, my bad, okay, God help me. Even in that moment, we still feel all the stuff, right? We, we feel the conflict and the hurt and the pain of the consequences, right? And that's what they're going to do in, in this lament as we continue. They're going to kind of say, well, here's, here's how we feel in the middle of this. Verse 13, from on high, he sent fire into my bones and it prevailed over them. You ever been in a moment where whatever the bad thing that, what, that happened, you can feel it in your bones, right? I mean, you, you feel it in the deepest part of who you are continuing in verse 13 he has spread a net for my feet he has turned me back you know sometimes natural resource officers they'll they'll go put nets out and trap animals on purpose and it's not mean it's kindness they're trying to get them out of one area and maybe transfer them to another area it's a it's an act of kindness so sometimes we should be cautious in saying well man my, my feet got caught up in this net and God threw out this net, and it's terrible, and God's so mean. No, sometimes God's nets are mercy. Sometimes God's nets are protection, protecting us from sin or pride or fear or, or anger or worry or even idolatry. God's nets can be grace. Verse 13, continuing, He has made me desolate and faint all day long. The consequences of their sin met them feel alone and far away from God. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt alone and, and far away from God? See, this isn't you know, fancy Bible language. This, this is a prophet of God writing on behalf of the people the real feelings of what was happening in their lives. Everything was falling apart. They felt alone and far away from God. Verse 14, the yoke of my transgressions is bound By his hand they are knit together. They have come upon my neck. He has made my strength fail. The Lord has given me into the hands of those against who I am not able to stand. They they were tied up and tied down with the yoke 
of their sin. A, a yoke is like a little wooden apparatus that you put across the, the necks and the shoulders of oxen. And that little yoke, it, it helps the oxen plow the field. It helps them pull something. But their yoke was so heavy that it had weighed them down. They're laying on the ground. They can't even get up. They're exhausted. It has pressed them down into the ground. Ever felt like that? Ever felt so pressed down, so buried in, in sin or stress or anger or fear or worry or whatever it may be, so stressed, so buried down that you feel like you can't even move? Here's the beauty, though. God has done something to rescue us from that feeling, from that reality. This is what Jesus said, Matthew eleven thirty. 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does Jesus mean his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Well, basically what he's saying is he's done all the work. He's done all the heavy lifting. He's done all the heavy pulling. He's done all the heavy plowing. He's done the work. You see, we can't make ourselves right with God just with you know, religious activity or with good works. There's, there's no way for that to happen. The only way for us to be made right with God is for us to have the yoke of Jesus, so to speak, to, to believe in the work that Jesus has done, the life of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and what he did on the cross. So the challenge for us at any given moment of life, no matter what we're facing, in the, the challenge is... Will we believe in Jesus again right then? See, John 3, 16, the, the language there is not just believing once. The language there is to keep believing, to believe and keep believing. So we're not perfect. Good news. But Jesus is. His life was perfect. His work on the cross is perfect. So you don't have to be buried under the weight of sin. You don't have to. What God did through Jesus was to make a way for the weight to be lifted, to make a way for sin to be removed. That's what's happened to God's people in Jerusalem. They're weighed down. The weight of their pride, the weight of their arrogance, the weight of their idolatry has buried them, buried their city, buried their nation. And now they're like homeless refugees. They have nowhere to go. And that weight, it was doing something to them. It wasn't just they were weighed down. It was doing something. Listen to verse 15. The Lord has rejected all my strong men in my midst. He has called an appointed time against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. Ain't no Hallmark card there, right? I mean, goodness gracious. But the picture is not confusing, right? It's, it's like a, an army just suffocating another army. It's, it's like a huge vat of grapes that have just been brought in from the field. The people felt crushed. That They felt crushed. Crushed under the weight of the consequences of their sin. It was overwhelming to them. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt crushed? Have you ever felt overwhelmed? And, and what did that crushing feeling do to them? Listen to verse 16. For these things I weep. My eyes run down with water. Their pride was broken. They, they, were, they were truly lamenting. They, they, they got it now. Oh, oh, I've been turning everywhere but to God. For 40 years, 
We've been turning everywhere but to God, but now, now we're left with nothing. So we, we have to. We have to turn to God. We have to complain to God. We have to ask God, and we have to trust God. But listen, lamenting is not an immediate magic pill that, that makes everything go away. Listen to how the poem continues in verse 16. Because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. So the enemy army comes in, takes over. The people lose their city. They, they really lose the entire nation of Judah, the whole kingdom. They're desolate. They're down. They're discouraged. They're angry. They're alone. They're weak. They're empty. They're exhausted. They're crushed. They're buried. They're sick. Ever been there? Ever been in one of those moments when, when everything is coming down on top of you? Maybe you're there today. Maybe you've been there this week. Maybe you're a little anxious that it's coming <laughs> this week. That moment where no one and nobody can give you any comfort. That moment when you feel so far away from God and, and so far away from other people. Is there any hope? I mean, this lamenting poem, come on, Dal. This is depressing, man. I'm ready to go to lunch. This is terrible. Come on, let's move on. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for this crushing feeling? Is there any hope with this reality that the wrath of God is real, that the, the justice of God is real, that the consequences of sin, they're, they're all real? Is there any good news? Yes. It's not just good either. It's good and great and grand and glorious news. And we just read it in verse 16. Listen to it again. One who restores my soul. What did King David say? King David said this, the Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. Listen, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, there are going to be times that you soar like an eagle. You're going to fly like an eagle. And there's going to be times that you're going to wallow in the pit. You're going to experience the agony of defeat. And if anyone tells you anything different or preaches or teaches you anything different, I graciously say they are a liar. Because the scripture throughout tells us that life is not going to be peachy and perfect all of the time. David soared, David wallowed, but something happened when he was in the pit. Listen to what he said, Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He heard my lament. He heard my prayer. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction. See, the good and great news is that you will be brought up out of of the pit of destruction. Does that mean everything in your life is going to get perfect? Your, your spouse is suddenly going to be amazing. Your kids are suddenly going to be obedient. Your job is going to be wonderful. Your team's going to win every game. And, and everybody you vote for is going to get elected. And the economy is going to be great. And you're never going to get sick. No, that's not what any of that means. I got a text this morning that, that one of our former church members uh, from a previous church that I served, that, that Miss Lib went to be with the Lord this morning. Or, or sometime this weekend, I guess. And, and my response back was, it is so satisfying 
to understand what it means for our faith to become sight. So I can't promise you that everything in your life is going to work out exactly how you want it. But if you are following Jesus, I can you promise you this, there will be a moment you will be out of the pit. Your faith will become sight, and it will be sight forever. Your joy will never be taken away from you. That's the promise of Jesus, and he guaranteed his promise with his own blood, with his own resurrection, and his own promise return. We're not believing in a fairy tale. We're believing in the powerful truth, the powerful life, the powerful salvation of Jesus. He will pull us up out of the pit of destruction. He might do it today. He might pull us up out of that financial pit. He might pull us up out of that emotional pit. He might pull us up out of that spiritual pit. Whatever pit we may be in, it might happen today. And if so, praise God. But if it doesn't happen for a few weeks, if it doesn't happen for a few months, even if it doesn't happen until the moment you breathe your last, you will be pulled up. It's impossible for this not to be true. And what's the key to being pulled up out of the pit? The key, according to David, is crying out. The key is lamenting. The key is turning to God and complaining to God and and asking God and trusting God. That's the key. Right now, as individuals, as people, in our families, in our jobs, in our country, we are looking for answers everywhere we can. And we are convinced that our pastors and our presidents and our kings and our queens and our athletes and our money are going to heal all of our problems. And that is a lie. God's never promised it. And even if you don't believe in God, you know it's not true. But God has promised by his grace, by his mercy in and through Jesus that he will hear our cry and he will pull us up out of that pit. So what can we do with that today? Let's take it back to my little sports article I read. One more last thought here. The Lord gives us a gift, an opportunity to repent and guard our hearts from false gods and short-lived pleasures. See, for 40 years, the people had heard this message, God saying, hey, repent and come to me. Telling his people, come to me, lament, cry out, and I will heal your land. I I will pull you up from the pit. But the people ignored. See, God is being gracious to us every day. He's allowing us opportunities to repent. P.J. Tibian goes on, this opportunity is usually missed when we win because we're too busy celebrating, right? Too busy celebrating. I mean, there's, there's stories from over the years of, of the athlete, you know, that, that pulls off some amazing play at the end of the game, and, and then in the celebration, you know, they tear, the, they tear their knee up or their, or their ankle or somebody breaks their arm, you know, jumping on top of the pile, you know. Sometimes we miss the grace of God in the middle of a win because we're too busy celebrating. We don't stop just to think, hey, God, thank you. He goes on. But when our team loses and we need relief from the pain, that's what's happened to Jerusalem, right? They, they've lost. The city's been overtaken. They, they're homeless refugees. They've lost. When our team loses, when we need relief from the pain, God exposes what our hearts want most and strengthens us to weaken and destroy idolatry. 
See, that, that's what was happening to the people. This whole poem is them going, oh yeah, we forgot to turn to God. We chose to not turn to God. And now we're in the middle of all of this self-inflicted mess. And even in the middle of the self-inflicted mess, God is still saying, come to me. I will restore your soul. I'll do it. Last thing PJ says is this. God strengthens us to, to weaken and destroy idolatry. And he says this, and that is a far bigger win. The win over sin, the, the win over idolatry, the, the win over pride, the win over anger, the win over fear, the win over apathy, the win over all of those is always the biggest win. It's always the biggest win. It's not the game. It's not the promotion. It's, it's not even the, the baby or the grandbaby. It's not even the, the retirement day. All those things are wonderful and fantastic, but the win of all wins is the win over sin. So today, this week, this afternoon, and all the other days of our lives, let us run as fast as we can from self-inflicting sin, self-inflicting pressure, and let's heed this advice and go for the bigger win. Let us be people that go for the bigger win.